Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, and welcome to the Post Questionnaire. Caroline and I are really thrilled to speak with a photographer today, Ori Gerst, who's based in London and grew up in Israel, and who's interested in time and memory and takes stunning, absolutely stunning photographs of flowers and vases and landscapes and other things. You have to look at them at Ori Gersht, which is his Instagram handle, and also at Marcel, as in Marcel Proust, marcelforart.com, where you can see some of his works. He's exhibited all over the world. He's been collected in the greatest collection in New York. I've seen his work at Yancey Richardson's galleries. Um, And Carolyn and I were just thrilled that or he took the time to answer the 35 questions. And here's how to find us. Please follow us on Instagram. It makes a big difference for others to discover the podcast as well. Ori is at Ori Gersht on Instagram. Caroline is Caroline Weber 2020 on Instagram. The podcast is Proust.questionnaire, and I am Uli.bear on Instagram. Please follow us. And as I said, it makes a difference for others. Ori's work can also be seen at web.marcelforart.com. That's Marcel as in Marcel Proust, for art, one word, dot com, where you can see some of his work or, of course, at origersh.com, his website. Check it out. Follow us. Send us what you like. And we always love to hear from you. So we hope you enjoy this episode of the Proust Questionnaire. Welcome to the Proust Questionnaire. 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. Ari Gersh, we're so delighted to have you today uh, as a guest on the Proust Questionnaire. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> and uh, yeah, stand up for the challenge. It's, it's, there's, there's no wrong answers, <laughs> of course. And we're going to no, start no. right away with um, an it's easy one. By the way, about wrong answers, I was just thinking about pausing and not being able to come with any answer. This was, <laughs> but it, 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 I wrote myself a couple of notes here. So um, um, just um, help me to sharpen up if I need to. <laughs> But also, or you should know, some people sometimes say, I don't have an answer for this. It's totally fine to skip. There's no research. I'm not, this is not what I think about. But we'll start you out with um, 
what is your idea of perfect happiness? So I think that um, probably connecting with a new body of work, but when I say connecting is not starting a new body of work, it's this moment of Eureka. It's the moment where something happened, usually emerging out of some sort of mistake or coincidence or a blink when I'm less prepared and most open to receive it. And then there is a, and then there is this kind of a short utopian um, 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 period that uh, I know in advance that will never last. It's quite ecstatic. And uh, when a body of work is completed, it's already gone. There is something strange. I used to think that when I come to an opening of an exhibition, I attend my own funeral because <laughs> the work is already gone and everyone come to, um, to congratulate and to be there at something that I already kind of um, send away. And I'm standing in front of the abyss and I think, shit, what I'm gonna do tomorrow. And um, I mean, I, I developed strategies to deal with it over, over the years. And uh, I used to write notes and I used to have kind of other things that are going. And also now my work and my life are um, become more and more entangled and complex. So there are a lot of things that come conquering and, uh, and, um, and, and kind of developing in some sort of parallel. So I'm less worried about the void, although it's always looming, right? <laughs> yes. The second question is, what is your greatest fear? I was thinking about it yesterday because um, before my children were born, I used to think about myself as a fatalist and uh, I, there was a point, there was an incident in my life that I felt redeemed me from the fear of death and I thought now, you know, I can just jump from any window. And um, I mean, it was after a close friend of mine died when she was 30 and she was living with, um, um, she was living with, with, with me at the house, she had the issue with her parents, she died of cancer. And there was something about her clarity when she was going through through the final stages. And then, and then I kind of, um, not so long after, I went on my first major trip to Sarajevo at the end of the war, just on my own with a sleeping bag in a tent I was driving from London. And it was all these kind of open journeys and open-ended you know, open experiences. Uh, Sarajevo was all covered with minefield when I arrived there. It was uh, right after the war. And my kind of interest of what happened to a place that is that all of a sudden the media and the rest of the world are turning away because the drama is over. There is something very opportunistic, despite all the kind of the moral reasoning to support and to instigate an issue. So I was very much kind of interested in going around this time. But I have to say things changed when my children were born. And when, um, when my son was born, he was born around Christmas and Noga, my wife, came home. And for the first two weeks, we just stayed at home. We hardly left. It was Christmas time. And then I, first time I left, I think it was about 10 days after, I was driving my car and I felt, wow, this is very strange. I felt as if my, conscious, my consciousness was, was expanding and my sense of self was kind of was transformed. 
I wasn't just me. There was something else there that was always with me. And, uh, and this has consequences. It took me a long time to be able to, to live with that and to understand this. And uh, from being what I kind of, uh, um, kind of uh, assume in a kind of fatalistic life, I became very, I feel in, in retrospect, maybe a little bit over uh, protective in some way. And uh, so when you asked me this question, I think that um, the, the fear or anxiousness, anxiousness about not having any money, not because of myself, but not being able to provide for my kids' home. I mean, the, the fact that the, the risk of being uh, expelled from our home, not being able to provide food for them and education. I mean, there is, there is a responsibility and, and again, not to myself. So if you ask me about the fear of dying, I'm not worried about dying, but I'm worried about leaving them without a father and they, my wife without without an husband. But particularly I'm talking about the children because the helplessness stage of being born and coming to this world, it's such a profound moment in the relationship that evolved from that point are very, very difficult to, to digest and to learn how to cope with anyway. Yeah. What is the trait you most deplore in yourself? I saw that maybe it has to do with the fact that I tend to get, I'm very kind of energetic and very excited. And maybe sometimes my excitement is a, um, is a, could become less respectful, not respectful, but, but a, not being, as attentive to others sometimes as I should or listening as much because I've been carried away by all this kind of energy and, 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 and things that, that are overflowing and sometimes maybe I should be, I'm trying to, but learn more to, to restrain it and sit quietly and listen and not get involved and jump when I feel that I have something to say and then, um, um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> what is the, um, Uli, I think this is yours. Oh, okay. What is the trait, sorry, you most deplore in others? I think that is a dishonesty. And I feel that um, dishonesty often coming or merging from, I mean, it could be out of fame and malicious intention, but I think that many times it come out of a lack of um, um, integrity of will to face consequences. And <laughs> I feel that uh, to be, you know, to be bold and brave and stand for things that you, that you did, even if then no matter what the outcome is, uh, is very, very important. So dishonesty, yeah, I kind of feel that when the, whenever this threshold is being passed, then there is no return. Um, so yeah. it's something that I kind of see as a, I mean, <laughs> it sound, may sound a bit extreme, but I kind of feel that there is a, there is, there is a line that is a very much reflective on somebody's um, integrity. Not that everyone, I mean, of course, everyone has moments where they, uh, where they, sleep a little bit or they feel, you know, I mean, 
I'm not talking about a, a kind of a, a level of perfection that is a detached from the um, from the uh, the reality and the gray zone that uh, we often slip into. But uh, I would say dishonesty. And another thing that I would say I can add another one is um, uh, is arrogance. I can't oh. understand people that are full of themselves, no matter how how good or great other people think they are. Uh, humility is. So when you ask me what is the most, uh, you know, well, you can go to the next one and probably the answer would be humility. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what is, oh, this is kind of the inverse of what you were just talking about um, in terms of what it will have us focus on. What, which living person do you most admire? So I was thinking about it and I find this question um, difficult. I always find it difficult if somebody asks me who is the photographer you like most and because right. it, these things are always in flux and I and I always find it hard to come with a name. So I was thinking about, this is one of the things I was thinking yesterday and, and they, it come again to, um, to humility and to people that are just focusing on on making and engaging with with the with essence, and I was thinking actually in a strange way about Cormac McCarthy, um, oh. about him being. I mean, you know, I read some of his book. I don't know that much about him, but the kind of this legacy of being so detached from from the world. You know, I mean, even to a point where I mean, I know that there are extreme points like you can't quote, you, you refuse people quoting. Um, his books, but I like this idea of somebody that is just, you know, that the motivation of doing um, is really removed from um, self-glorification. That's why I was thinking about Cormac Mulhart. I mean, I can think about other people too, but uh, it's an example of, uh, of people. And uh, of course, you can come with people like Mother Teresa and all this, but I'm thinking about um, huh. artists and makers that um, are never deluding and eluding themselves that they, you know, and, and kind of aiming or attempting to claim greatness. I really can't stand this. That's, <laughs> that's a really fundamental idea that some people actually work for the sake of their work or their, to create something. And I was talking to a, a novelist a couple of weeks ago who said, but everybody writes knowing that they want to be the best writer. And I thought, whoever wrote for that reason. It was really strange. And this person thought they insert themselves into an entire tradition, competing with everybody and fully aware of it. And I yeah. thought there are figures who don't, like, like you just said, some people create not to become known and famous and have a career based on it. Yeah, yeah. I'm competitive with myself. Because <laughs> I'm striving to do, you know, I'm kind of, I'm always striving to push the boundaries of what I can make, but it's not to be better than others. It's just to be better than what, than myself. And I think that this is kind of the, this, this right for, um, for, um, for, for improvement is, is super important. I had, I had a very powerful experience uh, this weekend. Um, I used to be a basketball player since the age of a nine to about nine to 18 and in Israel. And it was a serious club. It's kind of a, 
you know, professional club. So it was like a proper basketball academy. And they, we were all in, in, we're training very hard. So it was like five days a week training, four hours every day, you know, it was, and um, this was 35 years ago. And about 10 days ago, one of my closest friends from the team all of a sudden approached me on Facebook and we talked and then he said, oh, you know what, Tori, we, we just formed the team of the stars of 1967. And <laughs> my 50th birthday, my wife surprised me and they, some of the players came and they did a game and all this. So I joined the team and we connected with others. Before we knew it, we were all of us, like 12 of us over there. And so I kind of called the Zoom call and, um, and we all connected and it was, it was an amazing meeting. We sat for three hours together. Part of it was nostalgic and, and we called moments from different games and from different tournaments and all the rest of it. And some of it was reflective on what each one of us is doing now. And I'm saying this, one of the things that I found most touching in this is how um, generous everyone seems to be in, in, in complimentary to each other. Um, and when you play in a team, you have this double edge because it's super competitive and you fight for your position and, every, and there are a few other players in the team that are fighting for exactly the same sport. So in right. training and in game, you have to prove that you are better than them because if not, you're on the bench. And yet when you're on the bench and they do something good, you have with, from the bottom of your heart to celebrate this and to support them. And there is something about it. Part of other things are things that are really important. I was really surprised how every one of these people really prevailed through life. And I thought, you know, when you play in a team and there is and you, the, the, challenge, the daily challenges and the demand and, and the self-discipline, so probably it kind of makes sense. But this kind of relationship between competing and at the same time being very generous and not jealous of other, but actually supporting them. It's, um, I think it's a quality that I, that I definitely am endearing. Yeah. Ori, what is your greatest extravagance? <laughs> I was thinking about it and uh, I'll say something quite um, uh, maybe surprising. I haven't done it for a while though, but I was thinking about hallucination because then you can really fly and do anything. I mean, it's the moment of uh, freedom that you can actually, you know, become a giant and a dwarf and totally out of control. And <laughs> there is something about this that is uh, just, you know, limitless. So... That's nice. You know, I like this answer. That's funny. <laughs> um, you know, it, it just, I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a, within it, contain everything because they, yeah, because of the, the dissolve of all boundaries. Yeah. Uh, what is your current state of mind? My current state of mind? Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a very good question. So <laughs> two sides to this, because there is a, a desirable one where I would like to be. So probably, and then I mean, I'm very careful when I say the world, uh, real or reality, but uh, there is uh, the, the kind of the, 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 
the life that I engage with are imposing on me another state of mind. So at the moment I'm facing there are a lot of there constantly a lot of kind of pressures and and the pragmatic aspects of reality that are really like a whirlpool sucking me in and there is a desire to free myself so <laughs> at the moment in a strange way since the beginning of covid i start uh, i began writing and oh. I'm writing like um, i mean it's it's a prose and it's a long form i mean just growing and growing it's a something i haven't done before and i wake up every my dawn my time is quite limited so i wake up at five of between five and five thirty every morning and then Fortunately, the, the routine change in, at home constantly because the kids are home studying, schooling, and then they go to school, and then it's Easter break, and you know, all life are kind of determined around their routine. So I'm trying to come, but every morning I come and I do this. And when I'm in a good zone, I wake up, and that's where I would like my state of mind to be. I can really be, you know, I can just dissolve into this, and very quickly I can read and I can write, and I'm just seeing things with what I'm doing. And when there are all these external pressures and kind of um, problems that are happening, like for example, I'm working on, I, I was working on a very ambitious vo uh, volumetric VR virtual reality project. Um, and it was filmed at the Intel studio. And then they, after two years, all of a sudden, I got to know that they're closing the studio. So I have to deal with this. So things like yeah. this, this is just an example. There are a lot of uh, different ones, um, you know, kind of tend to just infiltrate into my mind and really un unsettle me. And it could be also, um, you know, a more, more trivial things. But uh, so what is my state of mind? Um, it's a constant battle between <laughs> the desire to um, to free myself from um, the mundane and be in places that um, um, I would say kind of creative and magical, and the daunting realities that is constantly coming and just with his claws just <laughs> rubbing <laughs> and pulling me um, into things that I, I'm open to free myself from. What do you consider? the most overrated virtue? Um, a desire to be famous and being famous. Um, is this a, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, we're living in a world now and in a, in a world of, a, of media and, and, and virtual presence that those um, sort of um, um, that, that um, Hollow fame become um, a kind of a, the, one of the most desirable um, um, ambitions of, for 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 so people around. And um, I have to say, when I was kids, you know, I was taken by this. And of course, so there was something gl glamorous about being famous. But okay. um, I yeah, I really deplore this. Um, mm. yeah. Uli and I have done this questionnaire with each other, and um, I the the I haven't heard anyone else say the, that fame is an overrated virtue until you. But that was that was my answer too. <laughs> uh, you know, living in New York, and you know, I'm, I'm not a big social media person, but uh, but when I last published a book, 
two years ago, I had basically ignored all of social media for the seven or eight years I was working on that book. And all of a sudden I came out with this book, was so happy that I had written it. And the only question was, can you get people to like it on Instagram? Can you get people to blog about, you know, and all of a sudden it was this idea of this kind of notoriety was, was what was um, held to be important. And it felt like such a strange place to live in coming from just the creative yeah. isolation you know, chamber. I mean, I mean, I'm engaging with, with the media and with sure. whatever you kind of call, you know, kind of fame, but look, I make work and it's beautiful when people are experiencing it and it's most beautiful when people are being touched by it. And of course I want my world, want my work to be experienced and, and be seen. Right. Um, so I don't want to be sound too extreme. It's not that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on Instagram and I'm, you know, and I'm confidently doing interviews and all the rest of it. <laughs> but what I don't like about it, it's where, you know, fame become about, about fame and not about something yeah. that's much more, you know, something that is fundamentally important and, um, you know, that it's not driven by a, a genuine desire to make our human experience better to each, you know, to each other, to enrich each other and to, I mean, so, I mean, these are the values that I think are being often left behind. And I kind of find it also in the art world, you know, there is so much, it becomes so much about big galleries and collectors and what is being, I feel, kind of left behind is the process of making the photosynthesis, you know, artists are, you know, the prime source of this, of this, of this uh, ecosystem. And so often just being sidelined because, you know, about, and, and so, yeah, this is, by the way, I started, I'm, I'm involved in a, in a digital platform, in an app that we started three years ago, and it's about um, empowering artists and giving artists the tools to run their own um, businesses, kind of thinking about them as a business. So is that, because there's so many artists now and up and coming artists that will, they don't have a gallery and will never have a gallery because the ecosystem changed so dramatically. And right. how they exist in the world and how they have presence. I mean, this idea of how they have presence, not, and I'm not thinking about fame, but it's like you need, you need your work to be seen in order to be able to, um, to, to develop um, you know, some sort of career that will allow you to make more work. It's kind of- Of course, know, yeah. Perpetuating experience. So um, yeah, anyway, so that's um, my answer to that. What is the name of that initiative? Uh, it's and called Nostel we... Art. It's on okay. the app store. I mean, if you, I assume you have an, an iPhone. I mean, yeah. 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 An iPhone. So yeah, it's called Nostel Art. It's a, it's a free platform. It's very um, image driven. It's very intuitive. The right. idea is that um, artists, you know, most artists don't have any inventory, for example. So all the works, they never know what they have. It's very easy just to upload work, to organize it in collection, and then you can create a website in 30 seconds, literally. It's connected right. everything, and every work you upload, the system, we created it, we call it a magnetic UAD, tracking the, the, tracking the work. So the work is building its own narrative or provenance over time. So for example, if I have him to send you an email, the thread is not between us, but it's also connected to the work. We have a, there is a Gmail integration. So you can click on every work and see every conversation that was done around it. So the, wow. the work itself becoming this sort of um, 
a center of experience and it's not about all the people talking about it it's about the world um, <laughs> that's so, amazing that's it, really it, wonderful it's easy to remember for our listeners because it's marcel Proust's first name so it's marcel for yeah. art Ah, we'll we'll it's a free app and we'll put the link in the in the, in the website yeah that's great yeah oh yeah. that's wonderful um uh on what occasion do you lie um so we talked about the basketball and i have a memory <laughs> um one of the big problems that uh, all basketball player Evo kind of fear is not to grow right and my father was a six foot four a six foot three and I there was actually one more player but I was the only player I would say in the team that was shorter than his dad due to drive me insane mm. so I used to lie about the size of my feet I always used to say that I always used to ask for shoes one size bigger <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> and, and also about my height um, I used to stretch myself so much and um, oh. hoping so did it work and, do you think you know I think I stretched my hands playing piano as a kid <laughs> well I couldn't admit that I was not good enough it was have solved all these problems I didn't have to lie about my height or my feet because you know if I was honest enough to say well I'm not good enough <laughs> so I probably lied about this too and um, but um, sometimes it's important. I mean, not admitting that I was good enough was important because otherwise I wouldn't work and be so disciplined to try to improve myself. So there is yeah. a risk. If you, if you admit about anything, because I think that sometimes a uh, will and determination prevailing. So there were players in the team that were like great talents, but they never put out work and they burn much quicker than those who were less talented and were willing to really you know, because sometimes you can open magic. I mean, in sport, it's very difficult. I suppose in art too, because um, there is um, sometimes a cap that is very difficult. You know, that you, f you feel it with certain things. When, you are, when you're really, um, when I used to be a kid, I used to believe that every person on this planet, uh, I was less than 10, I was maybe eight years old. Every person on this planet was born with one, one thing, one virtue, one talent that they are the best in the world in. The lucky one, oh. finding it in their lifetime. The unlucky one, this thing was not invented while they were alive, so there was a kind of a mismatch. And uh, yeah. this kind of desire, because when you find something that you're really good at, of course you need to work hard and you need to be very persistent. But when you find it, the matcha is, everything is coming with great ease too. You, I mean, if you don't work hard, of course, nothing happens, but, but things, are, you know, you kind of you feel that you're really in your element, and then if you bring to it hard work, then it's fantastic. It's a, um, yeah. Michael yeah. Jordan flying to the basket, he always work hard, but, you know, to see this kind of supreme talent is quite beautiful. It's magic, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe, I don't know if this will relate to your feet or your height, but today, what do you most dislike about your appearance? Um, Maybe to an extent it's still connected, being yeah. taller and broader, and uh, yeah, um, not that I'm very small, but I always kind of um, there's something that I uh, that 
yeah, maybe to have a bigger physical presence. Um, Which, but you know something, I have to say something about this too. There are other things that when I was brought up, I, was, I had to deal with. I mean, nothing dramatic, but I had to deal with. And there was a point in my life when I kind of came to a realization that if I'm too shy and if, and if I don't accept myself, then my life, I'm, then my life will always be to an extent miserable. There is something <laughs> about, you know, I was born, I was born into this skin. Right. And if I totally accept it, and I'm not afraid or shy of anything. Um, so what? So there are certain things that are not great, but if I start to kind of love them and accept them, there will be. And and actually, I talk to my kids about this because you know it's like I see you know as a kid you kind of you, you, the, uh, many of the um, deficiency are turning into lack of confidence. You know, so you cover your ears because you don't like your ears, all these sort of things. But if you start to really love your ear because they're unique, there is something so beautiful about it, and all of a sudden it becomes a, a strength. And, um, and, um, and then no one can bully you, and you not worry about it. And so, for example, you know, I have a lot of spelling mistakes, and um, because I, I have dyslexia. When I was a kid, it was unrecognized. Uh, so, I was the last kid in class that the teacher allowed to move to have a pen license. I actually had to go to the, to the teacher and ask her, and I was the last in the class, can I start to write pen? And uh, I remember this, and it was an embarrassing moment. My daughter also uh, had dyslexia. Over the years, I started to think, I don't actually worry about it. If I have spelling mistake, there's something so humane about spelling mistake. You know, everyone wants to be like a machine that they don't have mistake. You know, everything is correct. There is something, you know, quite, um, quite um, emotional about imperfection that I kind of, I, I kind of enjoy. So <laughs> that's part of, of who I am. And, um, and it can be funny and it can be ridiculous. Even if I'm not worried about it, then other people have problem with it. It's not mine anymore. Um, yeah. Well, that's in in regard to what I am. Um, <laughs> I, um, I have no, I mean, because there is limit, limited amount of time. I mean, you can constantly deal with how you could be better in this and what's wrong about you here and what's wrong about you there. And it can be such a, a daunting experience to be alive when you constantly are being pulled yeah. down by this thing rather than to say, that's what I am and I want to celebrate it and sort it all. Yeah. <laughs> Which living person do you most despise? Um, I think I said it earlier on. I won't point at an individual, but it's people that are really full of themselves. Yeah. People that are arrogant. People that are coming to the room and they think that they're better than other people that are sitting around. Mm -hmm. um, I just, yeah, I can't stand it. What is the quality you most like in a man? Um, I think that they, I would say sense of humor and um, a blend of um, soft and hardness, this kind mm. of uh, this double edge, and something about um, a, a smile and, um, and, um, and a glow 
with the spark in the eye. What is the quality you most it's like to about women? In a woman, this is a very... No, I, I actually, I like soft, soft and hardness, this kind of the, the, the double edge of the two, I kind of, I really like. And in the... Like, the, toughness, the, like toughness, but also um, there is something about smile and then um, the way smile expressing in the eyes or something that um, let's say I find very um, very compelling and touching. Yeah. This is, these are very gendered questions from the late 19th century. What is the quality you most like in a woman? Yeah, I said this. So the oh, second one, the oh, the oldest is for the woman. Sorry, no, sorry. I said, no, the first I talked was a man, but I, yes. when I think okay. about it. Sorry, I didn't know you had the question. Sorry about that. Well, um, which words or phrases do you most overuse? Yeah, it's easy. Put the iPhone down. Put the iPhone down. <laughs> Stop using digital. <laughs> it's kind of a tome as a father, you know. I, um, I never sure that it's the right thing to say, but I keep saying it. Because I come with a set of values that may be totally irrelevant to the generation that is kind of right. being brought up to this world. And maybe by stopping them doing this, I am depriving them from skills that actually will help them to, uh, to succeed in life. <laughs> so, um, right. yeah, so, but uh, definitely this, right. I'm going to say it in a few hours when I'm uh, entering the house. <laughs> Put the iPhone down. Uh, what or who is the greatest love of your life? I would say that uh, my wife Noga and um, and my children and um, I, there are many people that I love. I love love, you know. <laughs> but uh, definitely Noga and my children and I and you know the last actually months, I mean, since March, since lockdown, we are much tighter and close, closer to each other. And it's a very beautiful experience. <laughs> and it's enhancing this same, um, those feelings. Oh, that's great. That's one, a lot of the people I love who I'm in touch with during the pandemic, I hear the ups and downs of their relationship as it <laughs> kind of turns in on itself and they hear my ups and downs so it's lovely to hear someone just saying unequivocally it's enhanced the relationship that's yeah. that's wonderful Except um, when your kids can't put their keep their iphone in their hands because now you have many more opportunities to tell them to put the iphone down oh yeah so you're around somewhere yeah. <laughs> uh when and where were you happiest and it's, I can't put a finger and say when or where because there are moments, there are ecstatic moments and they are most surprising and unpredictable. And so, of course, falling in love is kind of one of the moments where this feeling of extreme boundless uh, happiness is, uh, is kind of popping up. Um, I was, um, only once I was gliding, I went to, um, I wanted to see vultures and I went to glide in a mountain in the north of Israel 
and this was quite a sensational feeling of happiness and there were moments of traveling on my own like the trip I mentioned to Sarajevo I did few trips like this that are quite sol solitary and um, and extremely lonely and I sometimes I find great happiness then and so it's not they're not tied to a place in a particular moment uh, there is something maybe the much more connected to a certain existential feeling and uh, you know kind of love and solitude I mean I don't want to sound over dramatic but uh, those kind of there are certain moments where these things is just this kind of happiness is just sitting through and um, and you know, kind of, I don't know, charging the soul or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which talent would you most like to have? To be able to play the piano and to sing in tune. And I'm awful. <laughs> I am tone deaf. <laughs> I, my aunt in Israel, she's the most famous singer ever. In, in, in you know, she actually, she, she oh. performed in New York. We are not blood connected. She was married to the brother of my mom. So, I mean, the, it's not like a genetic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why you didn't get the, the perfect <laughs> voice. Yeah, there, there was no reason for me to, to, um, to, to, get, uh, to get it in place through the genes. But uh, she, she performed in Carnegie Hall. She performed at the Barbican. She, she did a lot of Klezmas. Anyhow, but when we were kids, she did a um, children album and she needed some uh, backing vocals. So she invited me, my sister and her daughter to do the backing vocals. And of course I was so out of tune, but I was like seven or six or seven and I was not aware of being out of tune. And, um, <laughs> and the producer was kind of giving me our time all the time and I couldn't, you know, do anything about it. It was just so <laughs> embarrassing. And, and But this never stopped me from singing loud when I feel like it. Great. Oh, so, I mean, so it can be unbearable for people around sometimes, but I mean, this is the downside of accepting myself. Right. <laughs> Actually, quite nice. <laughs> if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Um, if I could change one thing about myself, yeah, I wrote some of these things, but I can't follow them, so I'm just saying so. You know, last week I met with my basketball team, so I would have said, you know, to be taller and become a basketball player, you know, when I was uh, younger. But then there, there would have been consequences because they, maybe the, 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 the lives that I pursue um, would never have been what they are. So mm -hmm. I'm very conscious of saying I would have liked to change anything. Um, um, I'm not deterministic, but... Um, um, you know, in the Kabbalah, uh, there is a phrase says that in Hebrew it would say, Everything is predicted, but the choice is ours. Um, and it's this kind of, you know, and we can talk, of course, about sentences like this forever, but this kind of tension between uh, determinism and choice, um, I think it's, uh, it's very poignant. And so when you ask me what I would have changed about myself, the devastating consequences for every, for every change, <laughs> according to the chaos theory. So, um, 
you know, as a butterfly, I'll be very conscious about right. <laughs> you know, waving my wing in different directions because uh, I'm pretty content and happy with the life that I was given. This next question relates to this. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, my greatest achievement. So, um, you know, I was thinking about this. I don't want to talk about family and all this because, you know, of course, uh, very important thing and um there is something about achievement that is a uh, backward looking and i really want hopefully forever to be forward looking mm -hmm. thinking about um, walter benjamin and angelos novus of folkly you know you look at the past and all you see is just wreckage upon wreckage. And <laughs> the problem is that if I look at anything that I say, oh, this was a great achievement, um, then there is something about it that is, um, um, that is a little bit morbid. Um, my greatest achievement, I hope, will be what I haven't made. And it's the process of making. It's not about attainment, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, so my greatest achievement is constantly pursuing making, uh, irrespectively to how good or not good it is. It's about this kind of process because in the process of making, there is a desire to discover, not to give up, to unveil, you know, to unveil some, to unveil a, a sort of med, a kind of a dim the magic and the beauty and the poetry of, of being alive. And I think that's, this is, if I would say, yeah, this is my greatest achievement, waking up every morning and feeling like, wow, I want to make something. I want to find something. I want to discover something. <laughs> and luckily enough, um, and I know that it cannot be taken for granted till this day, <laughs> I, I, I feel that way uh, most mornings. Right. Even when things are really tough and they sometimes they are quite tough. Yeah. Are have you felt like you're able to keep wanting to be making during during this pandemic? Has this been a fruitful time for you? So I mean, you know, I find myself writing. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, because I never made a plan. I never structure what I'm gonna write. It started in a strange way because there is an Israeli writer that I, I admire and they, I was working, I told you about this VR volumetric project and I connected with him and I thought, you know, I wanted him to start to write the narrative uh, because it is, it is a sort of a narrative piece and, um, and it's based on, um, on the relationship between the material the sensual experience of the world and the virtual and the kind of the blending between the two. So I, I collect encyclopedias and I start to build these big towers out of them and think about these encyclopedias as a kind of physical object and the relationship and then this idea of, a, of, of, of virtual knowledge and the fact that encyclopedia is an author so it's come with an authority so every fact was verified and now we're living in the time of a of democracy where there is endless information but nothing is verified and this relationship yeah. between you know or the, the kind of the quest for truth so the whole virtual experience is based about this relationship between the physical and anyway so i asked him and he started writing at some point he said you know why won't you start to write 
from personal experiences, uh, short stories that are connected to books, to words, to letters. Uh, the, the, the piece called Letters and Towers. And uh, the, the first act when you come into the space, you walk through a labyrinth of these towers of encyclopedias. When you talk, the words, letters are coming out of your mouth and slowly develop into this very dense cloud that you can move and they're responding to you. Anyway, so I said, um, okay, and I, I took, and it was the beginning of COVID, so everything was changed, everything was completely locked down and I was writing every morning and I sent him after seven days, seven stories. And then I started to write and his feedback was very positive and I kind of start to, I kind of really connected with these things. So I started to write another short story and it was like three pages and I felt that I'm not, it's, I have to unfold it. And there is more there. So I start to write it more. And now it's 40,000 words or something like this. I'm still doing wow. it. So this happens through That's great. COVID. On top of this, we were working on a VR project for a while and they kind of slowed down. So we had real focus on this and we're able to work distancing because it, a lot of the, we were able to put some things on the cloud. So I was able mm -hmm. to work with the, with the team. And when the studio open, I'm making things here all the time. So um, the, 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 the desire to make, my wife is the same, she's a painter, you know, it's a, she wake also every morning at five, she go to one room, she reads, she have to write all her notes and I, and we just need to do this. And then we, you know, the, the process and maybe about our relationship, this deep need that is underlying who we are more than anything else is the foundation i think for our relationship and we have a lot of commonality with our interests too but there is something about the understanding a deep understanding of this need some people said you know oh an artist living with an artist is a nightmare and i think it's just a bless because and um, because there is something very impulsive and compulsive and sometimes you know it and and and, and needy in certain way i mean the kind of the, the relationship between being in and off balance are so so correlated with the ability to engage with your with what you make and not and to find the right to, to be able to be more generous also with children the rest of the family depending on the uh, satisfying this need and in this respect i think that we are um, re really well aligned so we're making through COVID, we're making all the time, because if we don't, we just become unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful that it's symmetrical then in that way. Um, if you were to die and come back as another person or a thing, who or what would that be? I wrote it yesterday, actually, so I a very, very quick a butterfly. I was thinking to experience life in 24 hours, wow. to go through the entire cycle, and probably it feel like eternity or it feels like you know there to have a very different experience of time and um, uh, it's something that, um, that <laughs> would be uh, yes. remarkable uh where would you most like to live the answer is where i'm living and um, i was never forced to be here i chose to be here uh, there are some issues with london so when our kids finish school, we may move. I live here for mm -hmm. several years. And so the downside of being here is that I was brought up on the Mediterranean. And so I missed the weather and the sea. 
and sometimes I have this fantasy. For a short while, when I was a teenager, I used to have a sailing boat. I used to sail, you know, kind of around the beaches of um, um, of, uh, of Israel quite uh, quite often. So I have a fantasy of this and I have a fantasy of riding horses, all these fantasies, but I'm very happy where I am. So, you know, <laughs> the, the problem is with these desires, usually they are very quickly fulfilled and you realize actually where I've been was pretty good. So, um, <laughs> But Italy, Siena, you know, Tuscany, we have a fantasy about this, so maybe we'll find ourselves there for a period of time uh, when the kids are at university or living home. So. I'll visit you guys there. That, that, I would imagine for, for artists, Siena would be an amazing place to be. Uh, what is your most treasured possession? Treasured possession. And... Again, I'll say, you know, that it's, um, it's my family and some of my friendships. Mm -hmm. um, I find that the physical objects are real burden. So when you talk about possession, I think about, you know, ownership, not that I'm own, not owning and not that occasionally I don't have a desire to own, but um, one of the things I enjoy more is to throw things away. Um, including my own work. Oh. Um, I just feel everything become a burden. I, I really feel and I have this desire. And, you know, so when I was, as I mentioned, this traveling, you know, the, the, to Sarajevo and all this, it's just a sleeping bag, a tiny tent that only my body can fit in with the minimum I need. Um, and this, I find this most, most liberating trip to the desert with nothing and sleeping on the ground it's the most you know that's where i kind of I find i find most satisfying so and you asked possession right the question was my yeah okay, so yeah and but the most precious thing to me would be the relationship and the family and friendships and then yeah what do you regard as the lowest depth of misery the lowest step misery. And hmm. my father died two years ago from pancreatic cancer. And I was uh, spending a lot of time with him. And and I never understood um, so, so clearly um, what happened, or, or I never had this clear image uh, before of the body dying from within. I would say it even more extreme, rotting from within, and you're still alive. And um, when it was you know, at the late stage, occasionally had to burp. And, uh, and the smell of this was so vivid. And uh, I found this very, um, yeah, so this sort of relation, this sort of departure or separation when, they, when you and your body or the, when you start to kind of, this kind of, this, 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 this integration when you feel so helpless 
um, because, yeah, I never felt really helpless in my life. I mean, I've been in an extreme situation, but there is something there that you, um, I suppose acceptance is important at these moments, but um, there is always a level of resistance to it. And uh, that's, yeah, on this. What would be your, what would be your favorite occupation, or what is your favorite occupation? Meaning a job or something to do, or a profession. What I do, um, I mean, look, if I was able to be a great pianist or a musician, then uh, I have a fantasy on this. I think that there is something about playing musical instrument when you are really really good at it. Like uh, the other day, a friend of mine um, sent me a, a post about Kit Jarrett and. Jared had a stroke uh, a few years ago, and um, so he can't play. And um, when I'm listening to Kelm concert, for example, you know, and, uh, and the way he played the piano, there is something that is so is so at one with the instrument. I think this is just unbelievable. And um, but you know, I'm pretty lucky with what I'm doing, and uh, I get many many very special moments that uh, maybe not um, as elevating as Kit Jarrett, but, um, <laughs> but I cannot complain, yeah. What is your most marked characteristic? Um, willing, I think willing to help and a desire to be um, generous and honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you most value in your friends? Um, genuine uh, love and honesty. And I love sense of humor, and I like people that um, that. Um, are willing to uh, to break all boundaries, and um, I, I enjoy anarchy. So, uh, <laughs> not that uh, you know, I'm 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 much more. Um, um, I would say conservative in in the way that uh, you know the 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 burden that come with responsibility kind of uh, tamed me, but. Uh, but uh, if you ask about something that I still kind of uh, yawn for, then yeah. yeah. Who, who are your most favorite, who are your favorite writers? Um, well, I said earlier, Cormac McCarthy is uh, definitely one of them. And The Bear Faulkner is the book that I really love. And I love the Teen Drum very much of Punta Grass. Oh, yeah. And for um, McCarthy, it's Blood Meridian, not the, none of the other books that I really connected with. As they, as they, they, and when you think about them, I mean, all the books that I mentioned, um, um, there is something quite, I suppose, machoistic about it. They're kind of very much like a bear man in the element, you know, kind of facing the element, and there is kind of a romantic. The romantic sublime or something like this. Particularly, I think about Faulkner in uh, yeah. there. I um, I can think of, of 
of Mom, just saying. Who is your hero of fiction? So what, what fictional character do you resonate with the most? Um, it's strange when you ask this because, I mean, I talked about the teen drum and Oscar is very much in my mind. Uh, what I really like about Oscar is the fact that, uh, you know, he was, he's a midget. He took the decision not to grow when he was three. Everyone look at him as a sort of a victim, but, uh, he's, but he is always looking back from a very con kind of controlling or, 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 or self-determined position. Yeah. Uh, and I like the fact that uh, this kind of step, this kind of dual position, I mean, you know, is very devilish, but this dual position of, um, of uh, be, be belonging, being in and out constantly, and by doing this, becoming the conscious of society. I kind of I really like this. And the fact that the, the, the ability to kind of um, trigger uh, moral dilemmas um, there is something about him, not that I identify, I mean, now when I talk about it, there are elements that I really identify with. Um, but uh, when he talk, I mean, also same feathers in, in the bear and in the, in, in, what in, uh, in Hebrew it's called Rishoni, what the name, the, 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 our, pred our predecessors, it's uh, yeah. the name, yeah, right, the, the Faulkner, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, so they, yeah, so this sort of person that, um, um, so Sam Feathers is a, a kind of thing, it's an Indian, it's a native person that they know the forest better than anyone else. So he kind of leads them every, um, every winter to their hunt. And his kind of connection with the sense and the, and the, and the touch of the forest with the, the way he initiate the boy with, the, I remember the way he put the blood across his, um, is forward after killing the deer and the relationship with the bear. There is something about this primal relationship with nature that um, um, so people like him. Yeah. Um, I used to have a friend like this. I used to go with the, to the desert with. Um, his name is Arto. He's Dutch. He's not Jew, Jewish, but he moved to Israel because he, and I think the connection was his father was a um, um, prisoner, Dutch prisoner during the war, he was uh, in Indonesia. And he, so he was in, in, in some sort of camps. And I think when he arrived to Israel, I think that he had some sort of affinity because his experience of being brought up with kind of post-war post trauma. And uh, the way, he, what he used to do, I mean, he, he was, he, unlike me, wasn't uh, a great talker. And he was very quiet out when he used to go to the desert at least three days. He was living close to the Negev desert and he would go three days a week. And I connected with him. We used to go on some trips together. And, you know, he was like a crocodile dandy and it was amazing. He would <laughs> see of plastic on the, uh, on the ground. He would stop the Jeep, the Range Rover, and he would go and pick it because the, wow. the, deer, the deer will eat it and it will block their intestine. So we would, yeah. and then, um, and so one day, anyway, so the relationship of being with him in this kind of silence and traveling in the desert was always very, very beautiful. And we used to sleep outside. And one day, years later, I, um, I hear on the news in the Negev Desert, they were leopards. They are much smaller because of the 
metabolism is so and all the rest. Anyway, I hear, and when we travel, I always used to take the piece and said, so where is this letter? Because, you know, I was dying to, everyone wants to see, but no one can see it. Anyway, one day on the news, I hear in Israel that a leopard got into someone's house because he was starving and he was trying to catch a cat or something like this. And this person saw the leopard and managed to restrain it physically and keep him to the ground. So immediately I said, it must be Arthur, because who else will do this? So I phoned my parents and I checked and it was Arthur. No you know, way! They had to come and release the, the leopard. Unbelievable! But they, I mean, the leopard was in a week, you know, it was quite weak and he was very angry, but... <laughs> Even so. One of these people that, you know, when he sees an animal or when he will be in, the, in those surroundings, he will feel such great ease. He will never be phased, he will never be afraid. So I could see him approaching a leopard and just coming <laughs> to it as equal without, you know, kind of a worry about consequences. And when you come like this to an animal, then you can become at one, you know, there is, anyway, so right. talking about same feathers and outdoor, I think that yeah. it's a, a good comparison. Which historical figure do you most identify with? Um, historical figure. You know, I am from Israel, and I actually think that throughout leaders in the region, and I talk about the Israeli and the Arabs, did everything possible to, uh, to polarize. And throughout, never, there was never enough emphasis on education, of respect to others, of deeply understanding other cultures. There was always a, a kind of a, 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 a desire for separatism and to inflict fear on each other. Saying all these, when Itzhak Rabin became the Israeli prime minister for the second time, and the Oslo agreement came through, there was a sense of, of a change and a real will for a change. And, you know, Rabin was murdered. So I don't want to turn him into a saint in any way, but he became, he, but he became a symbol of a possibility that I deeply admire. So I could say Rabin, when I was a kid, I don't know why, but I used to admire a Mao Zedong. I know now how terribly he was a leader. <laughs> there was something heroic from a distance before I knew anything. That always felt, you know, it's kind of a the Great March and all these kind of heroics that um, has nothing to do. I mean, the Cultural Revolution is one of the most horrific thing happened in human history. Um, but um, but as a kid, you know, kind of this the idea of actually I had a fantasy one day to do the long march to kind of repeat this and this idea of of these um, proletarian marching through the mountains and being bombed constantly and kind of prevailing and then so uh, something about this romantic image is uh, something that I admire. <laughs> that, uh, what are your favorite names? Um, Amos and Leah, the names of, of my children. Yeah. <laughs> what is it that you most dislike? Um, most dislike. Um, having dinner with arrogant and dishonest people. 
<laughs> well, COVID sort of lowered that possibility for a little moment, right? Yeah, so that's why I keep on smiling throughout this interview. <laughs> <laughs> no more dinner with arrogant people. Uh, what is your greatest regret? Um, I have a simple answer of not, not becoming a basketball player. Oh. <laughs> this was if my first big disappointment. Uh, this was my first big disappointment. And I, actually, you know, I was talking to some of my friends, um, and it's strange, it can sound pathetic. I mean, what the hell to become a basketball player? And I've done so many things that are much more enriching and all the rest of it. But um, the, the thing about it, and because I was doing it at such a young age, and the level of his investment is so great. And if you're not totally buy into it, then there is no point of doing it. So you are in a situation where you just have to believe and just go for it in a way that is, you know, completely blinded. And, and I was young, so it all finished when I was 18. And, and it felt like a great, it was a great failure, a huge disappointment. And, and I resented it so badly. So I stopped doing sport. I started to smoke weed. I, you know, I was kind of, I was like, just, I don't even, not just doing sport, but I, I, I didn't look, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I didn't follow, you know, basketball games. It took me like six or seven years to come back. I'm doing a lot of sport now. I'm watching it, you know, I'm kind of all these things back, but the, the level of resentment. So, so I think that there was a real, disappointment and so I would say that it was a regret not that I'm regretting it now um, but well we we um, one of uh, my teachers was the philosopher Jacques Derrida who really wanted to be a soccer player and I always thought like I'm sure he would have been a great soccer player but I wouldn't have known Jacques Derrida the way I did so who knows yeah. what else you do for other people like in some ways the regret part is you know it's yeah, but you know that Albert Camus was a great goalkeeper. Yes. He was the goalkeeper for Algier. And you know that um, Niels Bohr, yeah. his brother was a great, I mean, both of them were footballer, but his yeah. brother was a great footballer. And in the Olympic, I think they won a medal in the Olympic and he was the top scorer for Denmark. He was a really wow. much greater than the physicist, his brother, I think, greater footballer than a physicist. But Neil himself, of course, great physicist and footballer. Um, <laughs> I identify with Jack Derrida. You see, this is the thing. So did he used to talk about his desire to be a footballer? Rarely. Because Jacques Derrida liked to talk about himself constantly. That's all he did. But he mostly channeled it into his books. So most of his, he always said, most of his autobiography was in his writing. So he rarely talked about the personal moment. Uh, right. uh, he did talk about it sometimes. Um, yeah, because the, the reason I'm saying this is because um, I think the childhood memory, I mean, the childhood memory are so profound, right? They, there is a, a friend of mine the other day, I was sitting with him, he had a very difficult relationship with his mom. She, she also Holocaust survivor, extreme situation. And he said, you know what, recently since COVID, our relationship are much, much better. He said, I think that she started to suffer from dementia. So she becomes softer. And we sit together and she said, you know what? My memory is so much better. I remember everything from childhood. 
but then she leaves us uh, glasses on the table and she can't find them for two hours, you know? So, uh, right. but there is something about this, uh, the, the, this childhood memory uh, that are really kind of marking and defining. And, and I think that this thing about, you know, you're asking about regret and probably I can't remember my regret from yesterday, but I still remember. <laughs> <laughs> we have two more questions for you actually okay. two and a half how would you like to die um should i say making love should i say i don't know <laughs> something quite I would, like, <laughs> I would like to die in a bank with something that is a, a that a yeah to film my art in pulsating, not art attack, where it's kind of you feel that it's kind of an elephant stepping on it, but uh, in, an, in an ecstasy. I would like to die in ecstasy. Yeah. <laughs> what is your motto? To retain ecstasy as much as possible because you never know when you're going to die. <laughs> you know, if, if I don't keep this correlation, it will be a disaster. And, yeah. And, yeah. Jerry Lewis died when he, in his sleep, right? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, Why do you ask? It was like 92. Because everyone is kind of, it's like the biggest fantasies of people, right? To go to sleep and never wake up as if it's a great thing. I mean, I think that the moment you die, probably time expands so much that these kind of transitions, are, irrespectively if you're alive or dead, are probably feeling like the butterfly, you know, like then your entire lifetime can expand. We we have a tendency to imagine our life, and we're talking about Proust here, but we have a tendency yeah. to imagine our life as, as a kind of a, a linear path at a particular rhythm. But of course, it's not like this. I always, I think sometimes what happened at the moment when you die, you know, it's like, what opened up there, you know, what is kind of going this, right. it, it kind of on the, the um, when you talk about the, the membranes of uh, that you kind of you, you cross this membrane, this transition. Yeah. Ori, yeah. we have uh, one more question we ask of all of our guests, yes. um, which is, who would you like to hear answer these questions? Um, I would say my wife, because uh, we talked about it, and I'm curious, actually. <laughs> She had to bring the kids from school, otherwise she was probably curious to sit and listen. Uh, but I'm pretty sure, I mean, she, of course, she will get the link. Um, so, um, yeah, so this is one. There are lots of people, you know, because uh, of course, it's like every person that, I'm, that I have an interest in, um, to see them being kind of exposed this way uh, would be great. So I can come with a very long list. Give us, give it, we'll, we'll think of your wife and give us another one. Caroline actually, and I interviewed the economist Paul Romer, who is also Carrie's husband. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. That was a beautiful interview because there were moments definitely when Caroline was leaning in thinking, wait, this is your answer? <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but there's so many great minds that will be great to listen to talk, you know, talking about. Um, well, we, we really want to thank you, and I feel um, you are the first mystic that we really interviewed. 
Uh, you're like one of the Sadikim Nistarim or something like a, like a really like a, it's actually like your answers are not a romantic answers, but all your answers are mystic. Um, this idea that there's a kind of ecstatic dimension in time that opens up through everyday life. It's very beautiful. I actually really, I really, I really like this, uh, this interview. Me too. Maybe some of the things that I really try to explore in my work, this kind of what happened in the falls of time, you know, when you, when things are kind of slipping from the physical into the metaphysical and then, and yeah, it's um, the desire to own something, to hold on to something and to accept that they're always slipping away. Right. And this moment, and that's why this is my problem with my work, you know, because I'm going through processes, I make objects, and then I feel that they are becoming a burden. So yes. it's so nice when people buy them, not just because I make money, because also they can have them and maybe they provide new experience. And for me, it's yeah. already not there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we really want to thank you for taking the time yeah. and, um, and also making your work really, uh, it's, it's, it, it hovers on this kind of, in this kind of, and Yemenian space between, or in Rilkean space between beauty and terror. Like Rilke has this very famous line, how beauty is so um, moving to us because it disdains to destroy us. Like it's on the, on the edge. Albert, come here. Albert is sleeping. He comes to the city for sleep. Maybe I introduce him before we say goodbye. Albert, oh, thank sleep. you. I know, I'm, I'm sorry. Beautiful. My dogs are so terrible. They're so cute. They're so, they're so affectionate. Yeah. This is Albert. Oh, hi, Albert. Oh, he's a little Westy. Like no, no, he's in a, he's a Norwich area. Oh, he's a Norwich. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I've always actually wanted one. He's very, he's very light fur color, though, right? Yeah, for a, you got black on the back, oh, but yeah. uh, some of them are just red. There are some white completely. There are some that are very red hair. Oh. And he's like, uh, they call it black and tan. Oh, he's, and he's so, so sleepy. It's winter, start winter coming. And then you really wind down when you come to the studio, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, unlike my terrier who's over in the other part of the room and my chihuahua, he was very well behaved. So thank you to him as well as to you. But we, we loved it. talking to you. This was really a wonderful conversation. So Great thank you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Really thank you. I hope we meet you in person someday. Yes, exactly. Well, soon, I think that the COVID is on its way out. Oh, good. Knock on good. wood. Yeah. Knock on wood. Yeah. Big expeditions right. are ahead of us. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.